The year is 1993. I'm Dave. I'm Charlotte. And I'm Anna. And this is My Marvelous Year. Welcome to My Marvelous Year, podcast and reading club, where we go through Marvel Comics Universe from its origins to today. We are in 1993, part four. Today, we're going to be talking about X-Men Fatal Attractions. Today, I, I'm Dave. I'm founder, editor-in-chief, comicbookherald.com. I'm joined today by an individual who bailed on this podcast at one point, bailed on this podcast, went to space, started exclusively wearing a killer purple yellow cape combo it's charlotte fierro charlotte how's it going hi yeah um, i'm feeling proud of my uh, new 90s style um <laughs> i feel like uh, i'm i'm good to be recruited by in uh, magneto's army like mm-hmm. uh, i'm mm-hmm. i'm the perfect uh, scott labdell character i think absolutely absolutely <laughs> and we're thrilled to have you you know we're also thrilled to have today a special guest we have dr anna papard joining us to talk all things x-men fail attractions anna how are you and uh and what should people know about you where, where should people find you <laughs> uh yeah thrilled to be here and and to be meeting you folks yeah i am a comic book academic but i also do writing in the popular sphere you can find me on websites like comics xf and shelf dust and middle spaces and a variety of other places um you can also find me on the podcast's three panel contrast which is a monthly analysis of comics classics and oh gosh oh golly oh wow which is an issue by issue read-through of the classic marvel series excalibur with myself and a couple of other comics academics and our friends we're where are we now we're at issue 35 at the time of this recording so we're in the muddy lobdell period <laughs> at the moment which yeah. fits in well for today's conversation yeah. of fatal attractions it really does. It really does. Okay, perfect. So we're jumping ahead um, in Excalibur continuity, but but in creative continuity, not too much, honestly. Um, and, and we're going to talk about all things X-Men Fatal Attractions. So Fatal Attractions is this crossover event. It's 93's X crossover that um, really, in a lot of ways, it is a sequel to 1991's X-Men number one to number three with the, the swan song for Chris Claremont, of course, with Jim Lee and company and fail attractions basically you know as you might get from that is is the follow-up of sorts to the return of magneto which has been building for some time now in the advance of this crossover which is let's see about six issues all super oversized so it reads long we did also read uncanny x-men 298 to issue 303 now if you're interested in finding the comics and reading along you can find all the comics that we read listed in the show notes you can also if you support the show over patreon.com slash my marvelous year you can get access to the spreadsheet at the um at the lowest tier for one dollar a month you can get the whole whole thing from 1961 to 2010 with of course updates coming for the next decade as we get closer but we're going to start talking x-men uh 298 through three then we'll dive into fatal attractions um, issues 298 to 303 in Uncanny. We got most of this written, you know, really all of it, by Scott Lobdell. We got pencils by Brandon Peterson, although the pencils change a lot. For example, on issue 300, we have the return of John Romita Jr. Uh, we got inks here by Al Milgram, colors by Marie Javins throughout. These issues primarily revolve around the post-executioner song development of the legacy virus left behind by Strife. Um, it is his curse on mutant kind essentially that uh at this point in time is infecting Ileana Rasputin who as we all remember <laughs> is now a little girl post inferno um a, a sweet adorable young Ileana Rasputin she's about seven and she has contracted the legacy virus although this these issues are kind of about uncovering what exactly this is uh we have Presser X and Moira trying to do everything they can to prevent it and to stop it um but as these issues play out we kind of realize uh, that that maybe is not going to happen Anna, let's start with you um what was your reaction and response to to these issues of uncanny and i guess kind of this era of the build of the legacy virus in general oh uh well there's a lot going on with the legacy virus in terms of 
cultural context. I mean, mutant metaphor, queer context, AIDS epidemic, all of these things are going to be bound up in sort of the symbology of the legacy virus in good and bad ways, depending on kind of your mileage on that. Different people have different opinions about whether that's a useful cultural context for the storyline or not. So that's one of the things that's going on. I, I will say I didn't read a lot of this storyline originally when I was reading Uncanny X-Men, so I'm revi revisiting this sort of some of this for the first time, and it was a bit strange jumping in here, like, I, I'll level with you. I'm a Nightcrawler stan. Nightcrawler is sort of like <laughs> yeah. my place in the X-Men universe, so when he went over to Excalibur, that's where I went, and I skipped mm -hmm. a lot of these issues. So I'd read the issues of this featuring Nightcrawler, and I hadn't read a bunch <laughs> of the rest of it, like, just being brutally honest. But... Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah, revisiting this and, like, thinking about the end of the Claremont era and the beginning of the Lobdell era and the ways that that works was something I really got hung up on a lot reading through these issues. It, it doesn't feel like a total hard break from the Claremont issue, like, era. You can tell yeah. that he's heavily, heavily inspired by and even reverent for so many of the things from that era, and yet a lot... And I, I am so hesitant to be critical of it because... Again, our mileage varies on everything, but for me, some of the complexity and more interesting subtext, especially sexual subtext of the Claremont era, is quite missing from a lot of these comics, which is not to say that those things aren't there. I mean, they're there because this is X-Men and that's always going to be present. Yeah. But yeah, I enjoyed the lead up more than the conclusion. So, I mean, I will say some positive things about these uncanny issues that lead into it. I was sort of being dropped into this into this era and some of the excesses of this era I do have an affection for you know you're just being introduced to all these <laughs> I mean I associate it so strongly with Rob Liefeld but I know it's not just Rob Liefeld but just that collection of characters that are just sort of a haircut and a name and don't have a lot yeah. to them besides that <laughs> I'd forgotten yep. that so many of these characters even existed. Like, oh, Fitzroy, I forgot about him, but he's like showing yeah. up with the green hair and the undercut, and I'm here for it. <laughs> so, like, sort of being in touch with those 90s excesses, I did enjoy for a while. And then, sort of, as we got out of the uncanny issues, and it was sort of issue after issue of, no, we're not the Nazis, you're the real Nazis, confusing mm, energy powers, yeah. explosions. And it was a little bit repetitive for me, but I'll let. The, the two of that you is, chime in on the uncanny issues to get that is the specific. most possible the most most accurate possible summary of fatal yeah. attractions <laughs> is i'm not the nazi you're the nazi just over and over uh charlotte charlotte what was your reaction to these build-up issues of of uncanny and kind of the the development of the legacy virus and then you know and and two as as anna alluded to there you know with fitzroy and the upstarts and these being the new villains um if you want to dive into that that's an option too but but where does your mind go first with these I mean, I, I really agree with Anna. I think um, I think it feels like a more boring version of Clement. Like Lobdell is trying to to do Clement, but he's doing it worse, obviously. Because uh, like, there's so many villains that we know nothing about except for like one or two. Like who who's the games master? He he seems like he's supposed to be a big deal. I have no idea who that is. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I can kind of maybe keep track of. Uh, of um, Fabian Cortez and Fitzroy, but apart from that, it's uh, it's just people with different powers that I forget about one issue. Well, well, um, good old Shinobi Shaw, son of Sebastian Shaw, who okay. has uh, who has taken out his father here, right? We we got a little legacy going That's on there. That's true. But I but guess. in general, I agree with you that the upstarts are not yeah. as thrilling as perhaps they their prominent place in these stories. <laughs> like they're yeah. really prominent in this era, um, and they don't do a heck of a lot for me. But yeah, but you're right. That's why that's why I was excited in the in the later issues when there's one character that we actually know and care about that joins the other side. Like mm -hmm. that that is a face we can care about. That. Uh, mm. That is on Magneto's side, and we don't have the all the same characters wearing the same outfits and with this, basically the same personality. Um, about the legacy virus, it's a it's a time in X Men comics that I'm that I'm less familiar with uh, because I haven't read a lot of nineties um, X Men comics. Uh, but I, I'm interested. Uh, it feels like they're. I mean, like obviously the parallel with AIDS is here, but like at one point during a debate, uh, Xavier talks about like directly the muted metaphor composites with um, black people in the apartheid and um, Jewish people in the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And then he talks about AIDS, but he doesn't mention gay people or queer people. He just 
talks about AIDS as if, as if it's detached yes, yes. for anything. So it, it feels like there's um, the writers and maybe Marvel in general is still shy about uh, directly addressing that gay people exist, which is weird in the context of doing a metaphor about AIDS. Yep. I think uh, I think it's Fabian Nicieza who's writing X-Force at this time and, okay, and yeah. a handful of other things, X-Men Unlimited. Um, no, who you're right. In that example, that happens. I think Fabian Nicieza actually calls out homosexuals like as a category of individuals, which now doesn't seem like anything, but it, I think in 1993, that was actually kind of a yeah. big deal for Marvel, the fact that they would even acknowledge um, that marginalized group. I, I think you're right there. I th- so starting, uh, I'm start with the upstarts because I don't have a heck of a lot to say on them. Um, <laughs> the upstarts have been building basically the second uh, Jim Lee and Wills Protasio kind of take over Uncanny, they become sort of the new big bad in the room, right? And they're this lingering threat, the games master, is basically they're just playing like they're ba- they're playing a game right as that implies like the game master they're all trying to win his approval so you have Fabian Cortez leading the acolytes you have Shinobi Shaw leading I guess kind of a, a new version of the Hellfire Club after um, killing his father you have Fitzroy who's come back in time with Bishop um, and then you have some other other players who who come into the scene like I think Sienna Blaze <laughs> is, is around at this time um, shouts to Sienna Blaze and anyway they're all like just trying to win the games master's approval through. I don't know, just various attacks on the X-Men. <laughs> like, it doesn't... Yeah. I, the build of the upstarts is never something that interests me a whole heck of a lot, although I do... I don't know, I'm kind of... I think it's the X-Men animated series fan of me that is always like, oh, Fitzroy, this could be interesting. Like, <laughs> I don't know, maybe, maybe there's potential there. Um, but yeah, so I don't, I don't have a heck of a lot to say about them. The Legacy Virus, I do think, is an interesting fallout from Executioner's Song. Um, again, like you mentioned, it's got clear parallels to the AIDS pandemic, which is, you know, now, finally, by 1993, is is people are well aware of it, right? And, and things are, I guess, beginning to be done to the degree they should have been quite some time ago in, in the actual context of chronology here. Um, it's, it's a parallel, I guess, you know, that is loose, like a lot of X-Men parallels, you know, you don't want to make a one-to-one of it, um, because metaphors fall apart, as I think we're going to talk about when we get to the Professor X versus Magneto of it all in Fatal yeah. Attractions, <laughs> um, or at least I definitely want to talk about, but, you know, it is something where it's like, okay, just as a, as a fictional concept, we have a virus here that only impacts mutants, although they're kind of figuring that out on the fly. Um, it is Strife's curse, basically, because he was scorned. It is his revenge that, you know, he unleashed kind of through manipulating and tricking Mr. Sinister. Um, and in our first example of an individual who is brought low by this is Ileana Rasputin, who, as these issues play out, uh, actually dies. You know, so we have the sweet, innocent young Ileana, um, which is not how you would describe her all the time, right? <laughs> post <laughs> post limbo and, and post, uh, you know, what she is now. But, like, this is the young child version of her, um, replete with, with Banff dolls, right? She's got her Banff doll collection with Anna. You can you can go to the specifics of, of where can people find a Banff doll and <laughs> how are they so prominent. Um, but, like, and, and Ileana, you know, she dies by it. Professor X and, and Dr. Moira McTaggart, um, they, can't, they can't do anything to stop the legacy virus. So as threats go, I think it's quite effective. Um, it is something that will linger with X-Men comics for a long time, right? This is this is here to stay throughout this decade. And I don't know that I want to go a, a heck of a lot into this, but like obviously as l- people who are living through a pandemic, an actual pandemic, um, there's a clear like, you know, just topicality of, of what is happening here with basically just the threat of a virus that you cannot stop. And you don't know what to do. It is scarier, I think, in many ways than even a Magneto, right? Who we have decades of of X-Men comics that tell us, well, you can fight Magneto. And you can't fight, you can't punch a legacy virus, right? So it's, in comics terms, it's that simple just difference between a new threat, I suppose, that needs to be dealt with in new ways. Um, Yeah, I'll pause there. Any other thoughts on these kind of lead-in issues before we dive into the meat of Fatal Attractions? Well, I'll just note about the legacy virus thing um, that it's in kind of like a tradition of deconstructive superheroes and illnesses has a bit of a tradition of being used to kind of facilitate that, you know, death of Captain Marvel being a notable example, you know, the one thing that the Mm -hmm. superheroes can't defeat is cancer. And that's been relatively consistent in the Marvel universe since then. There's been other stories that have reckoned with that as well. So it's a way of thinking about the limits of superpowers and it's a way of thinking about 
different types of threats that superheroes can combat. And on that level, I find it potentially interesting. But, you know, even as you're bringing up that thing of the legacy virus being introduced as a punishment, right? I mean, that's where you can take issue of it, you know, as a metaphor for the AIDS pandemic. Since that's a stereotype of AIDS pandemic in a homophobic sense, that it was some sort of punishment yeah. or something, right? So there's that going on. But then I think if you're going to read it positively and you are going to read sort of the, the queer subjects into X-Men and think about then we get to see this community reckoning with this virus and see how it brings people together and see sort of the emotional challenges of that and stuff. So if you're going to put a positive spin on it, you could do that. But definitely as a metaphor, it is inherently problematic in ways that I'm not sure are really fixable. But again, that's sort of getting at how useful are these kind of real world metaphors in these fantasy spaces and X-Men and the mutant metaphor is always complicated that way. Making it have a one to one with sort of any real world experience of persecution is always going to be complicated. So again, I don't want to like get too hung up on that since it is a problem with X-Men comics in general. Although, of course, it's one of the right. strength of X-Men comics as well that, you know, it can represent all these different experiences of persecution and otherness and difference. So always a double edged sword. Yeah, yeah, I think that's well put. So speaking of double-edged swords, you know, so let's let's get into X-Men Fatal Attractions. We have this crossover event. It spans all the, the main series, right, going on at this point. So we have X-Factor, X-Force, Uncanny, X-Men Unlimited, which has just launched here, X-Men, um, Adjectiveless, and, and Wolverine and Excalibur we finish up with. And like I said at the start of this, this is basically the return of Magneto story arc. Um, we see the, we see Fabian Cortez and the Acolytes sort of building their their platform. And basically throughout the, the first issues of Uncanny X-Men, we see the return of Magneto and kind of the truth comes out about Fabian Cortez. So the, the truth with Fabian, who has put himself in this position of leadership, is he effectively tried to murder, tried to assassinate Magneto um, by making him reliant on his power and trying to take him out and become the leader of the Acolytes himself. Uh, that did not work. As we learn in this, Magneto has, um, through scientific, very scientific means, become uber-powerful. <laughs> he, in fact, it came back stronger than ever. And, uh, and this is the story of his return, essentially. And he is trying to, throughout this event, uh, start a new mutant civilization on Avalon, it is on, you know, the Asteroid M concept, right? Floating in space. A new mutant civilization basically just saying, like, I'm done even trying to be on Earth. We're going to take mutant supremacy to um, this asteroid up in space. And one thing, the thing I'm probably the most fascinated by with this crossover event, which I, you know, I was telling Anna before we started, like, I enjoyed this more than I expected to uh, on a reread, actually. Um, I, I had remembered the visceral action of it, I think, more than the conversation that it's trying to have, um, which I don't think it nails, but I, I found it interesting. Uh, the thing that I was definitely the most fascinated by is, like, from 91 to 93, 1991, X-Men 1 to number 3 and spe uh, specifically, there's such a fixation and there's such a focus in X-Men comics on Professor X's dream. It very much feels to me like a reaction to, you know, the whole Claremont era, which actually doesn't fixate on the quote-unquote dream nearly as much as in retrospect as you might anticipate like it doesn't really fixate on professor x versus magneto in terms of ideologies you know by the time we get to x-men 200 of course like we have magneto joining with with the x-men right and so claremont i think consistently seems more interested in exploring how do we provide more complexity and more nuance and just try different things that haven't been done with the you know competing ideologies once we get to the reboot in 91 there's a very very distinct one ideology versus the other conversation happening and fatal attractions is that over and over and over again um whether it's through de literal debates like televised debates with professor x and senator robert kelly and um graden creed is, is starting around this time graden creed is the leader of the friends of humanity he is basically an ultra right-wing voice um of like a hate group essentially um i mean not essentially they are they are a hate group uh, who are just super anti-mutant right but he's he's got a platform he's got a sort of political um credit in some regards and the, you get all sorts of debates about like okay how do mutants integrate with humans um and and then basically is magneto's response to that uh which is the opposite of professor x's in many ways which is let's take this to space, let's have our own thing because humanity cannot be reckoned with. Um, that debate just happens over and over and over again. 
I actually find that conversation very interesting. I don't think it's handled with a ton of nuance here. Uh, I, I think there's a lot missing from it that I want to talk about. But, um, Anna, again, let's start with you. What 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 did you find uh, interesting or uninteresting about the repeated debates between Professor X and Magneto? And, like, what do you, how do you think that plays today? Ooh, well, there's a very much a simplification of the conflict between Xavier and Magneto. I mean, the Mac MX, like Martin Luther King Jr. comparison for... Um, Magneto and Professor X is always a bit dubious, I mean, for various reasons. And again, we can get really off track talking about that. But here it really breaks down in a big way through the kind of Mm. very murderous actions of Magneto and the ways that his sort of motivations are simplified. Because it's interesting to me the way the event starts with a lot of sympathy for Magneto. And I'll I'll note that Marvel Unlimited screwed up my issue ordering. So I actually had the X-Men Unlimited (laughs) issue first. Which mm-hmm. is, you know, about the about the guy that had the experience of, you know, his friend touched Magna's gravestone and Magneto um, killed him, and so he has this huge revenge mission against Magneto, but then admits at the end of the issue that it was actually his friend's aggression that provoked Magneto, and so Magneto's actually not so bad after all, and that is quite a complex, and I think fairly consistent with the Claremont era sort of depiction of Magneto as a sympathetic figure, and he just yeah. becomes increasingly less and less and less sympathetic throughout the event. I mean, he's responsible for we don't know how many thousands of deaths in this series. So that's really breaking down the sort of Martin Luther King Jr. Malcolm X thing in the sense that there's no comparison between Magneto and Malcolm X in this series other than Mm -hmm. a very basic separatism, but sort of the violence on this scale and this type of violence and the supremacy and it's just a lot of it makes that really, really not a good comparison to draw. So there was that, but I was also interested in the fact that so much of this happens through sort of conventions of TV debates and stuff and how much that was a part of the storyline, you know, both visually yeah. and just, you know, part of the story, right? We have people having debates on television about these issues and that very much ties in with the rise of cable news in the 1980s and the diversification of of tv channels in the american context and also the rise of confrontational talk shows which is something that had happened earlier in the 1980s but certainly like a huge part of dark knight returns right i mean all of the televisions talking to each other sort of about the nature of superheroism and that's a big part of the history of deconstructive superheroes it hadn't been the first thing to do that i mean we see stuff like that in god loves man kills too right i mean and other earlier things but still i felt like even silver age stan and jack you get um you get those sentinels issues Mm -hmm. you have professor x having televised debates Mm -hmm. um it it is you're you're spot on because post executioner's song there's a renewed attention on professor x as a public spokesperson but it's you know it's still the world doesn't know he's a mutant um but now they know he's a friend yeah. <laughs> like he's a he's a strong ally is the way it's presented at this point but it allows for him to be that that figurehead again um so carry on, oh please. yeah no it's okay I'll, I'll i'll finish off by just like <laughs> i often have mixed feelings about beast as a character which you know he's gone through so many iterations <laughs> that that's yeah predictable but seeing uh fun don't give a beast here you know given uh, the raspberry that. to the news crew I, I was on his yeah. side that was a good showing for beast Yes, yeah. great showing for Beast. Charlotte, Charlotte, what was your reaction to Fatal Attractions, um, specifically regarding the, the Professor X versus Magneto of it all? Uh, well, first of all, uh, this Beast is the best Beast. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> yes. Yeah, c- consider, um, about Magneto and the, the Acolyte in general, I think it's, yeah, as you said, it's it's weird to try and keep putting that in uh, Malcolm X metaphor, especially as if you if you didn't have the X-Men side of this, you'd think mutants were just uh, a metaphor for white supremacism, yeah, white yeah. supremacism, like the way the acolytes behave, especially as most of them are white. Uh, it's yeah, it's, it's weird to try and put that in a in a both sides way that they behave exactly the same way as the the humans who hate mutants. Yeah. Um. And and yeah, there's a there's a both sides argument that's trying to be played that doesn't really work. Um, and even like the during the debate, the the way the way in which um, Professor Xavier and uh, uh, Senator Kelly, I think, uh, start to to basically become friends and realize their their point of view on misandom isn't that far far away from each other is very weird because <laughs> he he's literally um, trying to argue that mutants should be controlled and registered. Yeah. 
So yeah, there's a there's like Professor Xavier. What what are you doing? Who, who are you becoming friends with? <laughs> Professor X's um, politics, and it's not something yeah. that I can speak to with tremendous eloquence. But he's so <laughs> fixated on trying to find a middle ground all the time, right? Like that is that's yeah. his thing, and often it's heralded as this tremendous, like the best thing about him. Like the best thing about him is his willingness to dream of the day when he can connect with basically anyone. He's like, if I can yeah. sit down and have a conversation with literally anyone, Senator Robert Kelly, who's, you know, working on on funding for bills that are anti-mutant and, and you know, will, yes, require registration and whatnot, um, that's his dream, is like, we will we will work with them and we'll work together. I think it plays poorly uh, in, yeah. in a modern context, maybe yeah. in the context at the time. I don't know. I was, I was probably too small. But um, it's just like, Reading these first issues especially, like until we get to the, I think the middle of the event where it's, I think, Uncanny 304 with Magneto, it's just like, Magneto's so right. <laughs> like, I'm just, as I get older, I'm just so, like, so on Magneto's side. Um, and Anna, to your point, you know, you have X-Men Unlimited, which engenders more and more empathy, right? Because it's really focusing on his origins and the fact that he's a, a Holocaust survivor. Um, it's this piece that I feel like really gets downplayed you know we think about magneto as a persecuted mutant and fighting for mutant rights which is of course what he is but he's been tortured coming and going right he was not a mutant when he was in auschwitz right that was him experiencing hate and bigotry as a jewish human so it's like magneto has a, a nuanced understanding of of hate in a way that like no one come not no one but but very few like there, there's there's an intersection an intersectionality to his experience that actually is very rare in mutant dumb yeah. because so many of the mutants that we encounter, especially the the big ones, are you know white and and they don't experience the same things. Um, and, and anyway, so Magneto's experience to me is is very, I think, effective. The problem, as we've sort of alluded to here, is there's all this focus on Magneto, which I find very interesting. But then it's that thing that we've joked about on the show in the past, where it's like. Yeah, it's very easy to root for him until we learn that, oh, if only he didn't love murder so much. <laughs> he, just, he just loves murder so yeah, much. It's and it's the, that thing yeah. of avoiding the complex and interesting conversation by means of saying, well, we can't root for him anymore because now he's a mass murderer 10 times over again. You know, and it kind of deflects the issue, I think, in a yeah. lot of ways by having him commit these atrocities. Because then at that point, it's like, yeah, okay, we can't. Like he's the he's the supervillain. We're back in comics territory. We cannot root for him, and that's to Anna's point. Like that is a billion times over where any metaphors, strained metaphors between Doctor Martin Luther King and and Malcolm X absolutely fall apart. Right? Like that's not. I think a lot of times, like in the a very simplistic, uh, there's a very simplistic I think understanding of those those two historical individuals that is taught in the civil rights movement, and I think it is is boiled down to like in my experience in, in education where it's like saint dr martin luther king and like this demonized version of malcolm x and it, we actually dig into the histories there that's that is losing all of the nuance which is essential so anyway there's a lot of recommended reading on that subject matter i would recommend just googling magneto malcolm x and just reading some essays on that which is literally what i did in mm. preparation for this because there's tremendous insights from people of color that are <laughs> not even close to to talked about in these comics and i think that's that's a big part where the whiteness of the creativity, you know, the straight well, white maleness of the of the creative side of X Men comics, um, with the exception, I guess, of, of Fabian Nicieza, who's who's a person of color. Like, there's, it, there's just the voices in the room. I think on X Men comics don't allow for as nuanced a conversation as this could be having, because there's actually a lot of meat on the bone. Um, I think in terms of saying really interesting things, and it's X Men comics, and it's 1993, and that's a high standard, I suppose. Um, but it's something that I feel like we still haven't totally gotten to. Uh, yeah. in in meaningful ways um something the, something ahead, that's interesting that uh, you you briefly mentioned earlier is that we are getting the magneto versus xavier debate as the main focus of x-men comics after the whole clement era where there were huge chunks of time where xavier was just out in space and not an actual presence yeah and so it feels like this the clement time was a post xavier versus magneto time where Magneto got, like, his ideals evolved and became something new, and now they're, they're coming back to want, what they once were, to, to come back to a, a Xavier versus Magneto thing that we didn't really have in the 60s, or, well, or in a very different framing. 
So th- there's something interesting to the fact that this feels maybe not backwards, but it feels like it should have come before the Clements era in in, in a sense, mm. uh, in in the way those characters have evolved since. Uh, yes, but it's interesting that this is actually the first time in a while that uh, Magneto and Xavier are both huge presence in the comics. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's a, that was a, a, an interesting new status quo, and why I think that's the main difference between this and the the Clement era. Yeah, well, I mean, the Claremont era was not that it was all about this, but it definitely sort of put Xavier aside as sort of the forefront yeah. of the mutant cause, and Storm was the leader of the X Men. And yeah. it's just strange here to have Xavier centered so much and to have everybody embracing his vision rather uncritically, with the lone exception of Colossus, who the explanation for his rebellion is that his brain is broken. <laughs> he had a head wound. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, not a lot of nuance there. So, again, it yeah. was weird jumping back into this, having missed a couple of years of X-Men here and just seeing how prominent Xavier was and, again, how uncritically they were embracing his and how some of the issues having to do with privilege weren't really reckoned with here. I mean, the fact that, you know, Xavier is someone with a disability, so he has that intersectionality with his mutantdom, but the fact that he's a passing mutant, the fact that he's not out as a mutant and is the voice of their cause, I mean, it's a bit strange, right? I mean, I think that there's potential there to sort of reckon with his privilege, especially in conversation with the things that you're bringing up with Magneto and how they have very different backstories, but it's just Mm. not really present here in the complex way that I would like to see it be present here. The main way in which um, Magneto being Jewish and coming f- having lived through the Holocaust uh, plays into these comics is when uh, X-Men tell him that, uh, or tell Colossus or the Acolytes that they're behaving in the exact same ways as uh, those who oppressed Magneto and his right. family did. That's the only way in which it's uh, brought up, I think, mostly in these comics, except maybe for X-Men Unlimited. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that argument gets bandied about a ton i mean i think literally yeah. every issue has a hitler reference um, they're always almost... going to the well of you're the real nazis no we're the oh god yeah, exactly. so many constant. going to the hitler well constantly constant. yep yeah and it's that it's that both sides sort of reverse racism that i think we can i can see through now but certainly at the time i mean yeah i think you both raise an excellent point which is this is this is peak professor x worship era yeah. of x-men comics like i don't I genuinely don't think there's any era of comics that is more into <laughs> Professor X <laughs> as the father figure, as the saint figure of the mutant dream. Um, I think, I think you know, I buy that the the creative personalities here really buy into that and really like that. I think there's a lot of fandom that still gravitates to that image and that idea of Professor X, which gets sort of reiterated through cross media, animated series, and then in the movies with Patrick Stewart. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think that really doubles down on this specific, which is really like a two, three year window of like this vision of, of who Professor X is. And and there's all these moments, too, with Professor X where he's doing the same stuff that the Professor X is a jerk crowd, a.k.a. those of us who have been, you know, who who have the, the full context of his history um, would gravitate towards. Like, for example, when he's fighting Magneto and spoiler alert. They fight Magneto, right? Like, he, you know, they get up to the base, they get up to the mutant asteroid and ultimately have a, a, a throwdown. Um, he said, you know, they're having this big debate, this big philosophical debate about, you know, that their back and forth that they've had. And Professor X says, like, we've had the exact same experiences, but we came out on either side. And I'm like, <laughs> like Magneto lived through the Holocaust. What are you talking about? You know, and it's like this thing where he's that's stated with no irony that's stated with absolute sincerity you're supposed to believe that that like these are two men who have the exact same experience and they did not they really really did not you you were talking about like a nuance that uh, magneto should have at uh, around this point and i think it's a nuance that the character should have but the writers definitely do not have Mm, yeah so i think the the problem comes from that i mean it is so bizarre like reading this version of xavier and at times i wasn't sure if i was supposed to be reading it ironically i mean you think about the depiction of xavier in the old new mutants comics i mean the ways that he manipulates iliana the whole legion storyline i mean even things with my fave nightcrawler it was xavier that wanted to force nightcrawler to keep using the image inducer and hide who he truly was and you're like Mm -hmm. that says a lot about sort of xavier's approach to integration and stuff and that was back Mm -hmm. in 1983 like i mean we'd gone through this stuff ages and ages ago like we'd gone through xavier was trying to make the x-men team 
you know, all sort of function as automatons. And Scott is there saying, you can't do that. These are individuals. That type of leadership is not going to work in this right. generation. And then you see a reversion to that here. And again, you mentioned earlier that it's in the legacy of the Jim Lee, Chris Claremont, X-Men number one, and kind of resetting things and going back to basics and that very much being... Yeah what's going on here. So yeah, it is going back to basics, but there's definitely a lot of nuance that is lost that is disappointing if you're a particular fan of the Claremont era and some of the character development there. I mean, the Ileana stuff is something that I hope we get a chance to talk about because <laughs> that funeral was weird. Very weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so let's let's start there, actually, or let's go back to that. So like, I, I think the beginning of Fatal Attractions, I actually think the event gets off to like a fairly interesting start, even with all these critiques of the actual debate. I think it's it's interesting that they're trying to have the conversation. It plays out um, in varying degrees of effectiveness as it goes. So, like, through X-Factor and X-Force and even into, um, what is it, uh, Uncanny. Basically, everything before X-Men 25, when kind of the everything goes crazy and we get the, the real violent takeaways of what happens here, um, there's all this build of, like, Basically, kind of just people having conversations about what is the right way to protect mutant dumb. Um, in X Force, you get the return of Cable after you know his kind of uh, disappearance of sorts at the end of Executioner's Song with Strife, um, and and you get then in Uncanny X Men, we actually have the the big funeral for Ileana, which ultimately does build to the the first and kind of the beginnings of the final confrontation with Magneto. Um, also, like just side note, Exodus debuts here as a, as a character oh, yeah. and he is the he is the voice and the the chief champion of you know this this religious reverence that the acolytes have for magneto uh and let, let's talk about the funeral <laughs> how weird it is so poor iliana she she succumbs to the legacy virus and the the issue prior um it's a pretty emotional issue we have you know colossus is he he's he's by her side all the time but then he's not when she passes and he's just beating himself up um but but we do get this giant basically everyone in attendance funeral which leads to some some cool visuals um we have uh, this issue has pencils by like everyone it's got jai lee chris sprouse brandon peterson paul smith john romita jr uh anna what, what was your main takeaway from from the funeral issue here well child Ileana is strange anyway because of how much it erases her very complicated story and just the emphasis mm -hmm. on her innocence here reads as really strange i just mm -hmm. also was struck about and i went down a rabbit hole with this a little bit but the funeral is very christian and it's Storm giving the speech, who is definitely not Christian. And Ileana was raised under state atheism. So I was a bit confused. And honestly, I think that that was just present because nobody thought about it. I mean, Colossus even says in Excalibur 71 in this, you know, story arc that he is an atheist. So I'm not really sure about that connotation of the funeral. Like that combined with the innocence, I was like, well, Ileana worships Satan. <laughs> I mean, I get that not everybody sort of knows about her full demonic yeah. backstory and everything, and that it had been erased, and this is a different character now and everything, but yeah, yeah that in emphasis on innocence was strange and just disappointing because, again, the character is more complex than that, and I think making a hard dichotomy between her as a demonic character and an innocent character, I think... I mean, again, what's sort of powerful about that character, and I mean, I I'm not... I know so many people that are such Ileana stands, and I always feel guilty <laughs> even trying to speak on her because she means so much to so many people. But yeah. it's my sort of general understanding that the ways that her story sort of questions what innocence means, and you know, that child psychology is more complex than we assume, that childhood is darker than we assume, is a big kind of part mm. of her character. So having her be mm. essentially voiceless throughout this and having people just sort of imprint that innocence onto her, that was another point where I was like, am I supposed to be reading this ironically? But I don't think I was supposed to be reading it ironically. And that was strange to me. Yeah, yeah. No, this, this, once she gets de-aged to the, to the little girl post Inferno, especially as we carry along, I mean, she, she really just becomes a pure prop. Mm -hmm. Like they, they just lose all the, yeah. all the character that, that Ileana Rasputin had developed, um, which is a bummer. And obviously is something that, that X-Men comics will we'll have to tap back into and i suppose we'll see as we we go through the years here um but yeah this version is is definitely not that i mean i think yeah with the christianity of it it's like i feel like you know that's kind of where you get to okay who's on the who's on the creative roster here and it, it kind of definitely just reads like well this is this is just what funerals are right yeah. like the, this is every funeral yeah. i've been to um so i, I think it kind of has that that presence um 
as this issue progresses, you know, again, we get Magneto showing up. And uh, basically, it's like, okay, here's the return. He's super powerful. He fights the X-Men. They have some debates about, is this the right way to go? I think one of the most interesting things that happens at the end of this uh, issue is ultimately Colossus having just had the death of his sister. And he's and he's been through the, the trauma ringer at this point, too, the last few years where his parents are killed um, basically because— they have mutant children. Uh, his brother, Mikhail Rasputin, returns as a supervillain and then also is killed. So, like, Colossus just lost his entire family, essentially, through varying degrees of, of traumatic, you know, violence, essentially. And he hears Magneto, and he hears him out, and he's like, yeah, that sounds good. He's like, that actually that actually <laughs> sounds like a plan. I kind of wish I had tried that. And, uh, and he joins up with the Acolytes, and he goes to space. Um, I think this is kind of the most interesting colossus gets for a while uh charlotte what did you think what, what do you think about colossus decision to to leave the x-men and go with magneto i mean yeah it would be interesting if uh, as you said uh, it wasn't just because his brain was broken <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah i mean and honestly that's what i was expecting the the whole crossover to be about at first mm. i was kind of express uh, expecting a maybe mutant massacre like uh, loose crossover where each issue of uh, every title would be just Magneto trying to recruit uh, people in each different group. Right. And that wasn't exactly what it was in the end. But uh, yeah, I I was hoping for that, like, for having several characters maybe deciding to to go towards uh, Magneto and and quit their previous teams, which only happened with the Colossus in the end. But yeah, that's interesting to have that character be, uh, to have a character we actually like and care about. Instead of having Fabian Cortez uh, on the <laughs> right. side, yeah, uh, but, but yeah, the the actual reasons feel not enough, and uh, and the and the whole honestly, the whole funeral feels just like a a reason to have everyone in the same place for Magneto's return. Sure, sure. You know, I do. This is not super important, but I I feel like the acolytes would be maybe 10 times more interesting if they wore unique costumes. <laughs> like, like the fact yeah. that they're all wearing the same colors. Yeah. <laughs> it really bothered me as a, as a younger reader, especially like now I have like Amelia Voigt and, uh, and frenzy and some of these characters, like I actually kind of know who they are from, from future X-Men stories. Um, but at the time when I was reading these, I was like, I just can't cause they all just have like regular human names too. And it's like, like none of these people, like I can barely tell the difference, you know, just because they're all like wearing the same thing and, and kind of doing the exact same things with yeah. the exception of Cortez, who just immediately, ascends to the worst um yeah, i mean honestly the only two i remember are the I, I and i don't even remember if they're in the acolytes or in the upstarts but there's the hairy guy that's in x-factor and excalibur <laughs> and then there's the alien looking guy yeah. who multiple men kills by creating a dupe inside of them <laughs> does that happen was in this? very horrifying <laughs> yeah death. yeah that was pretty good that. yeah yeah <laughs> but yeah those are the two i remember best because they have different character designs mm-hmm mm-hmm no, totally fair. Um, so, so yes, I, I think the Colossus going to space with Magneto thing is interesting. Uh, so everything really hits the fan in X-Men 25. Um, this is, uh, let's see, this issue is written by Fabian Nicieza. We got pencils by Andy Kubert, inks by Matt Ryan, colors by Joe Rosas. Um, this is probably, if you have taken away, if you take away one thing from Fatal Attractions, and <laughs> we, we have spoiler conversations here, so you shouldn't be surprised at this point but if you really don't want to know what happens in this event bail now um magneto in the fight he rips the adamantium from wolverine's skeleton uh nearly killing wolverine in the moment so it feels like okay this might actually be the end of wolverine and uh and professor x then in retaliation has a big old psychic battle with magneto and he removes his mind whatever that means specifically leaves leaves magneto in sort of a vegetative husk he does not actually kill him um my my first reactions to reading this stuff again. Number one, it very much it's amazing to me how much this story is Ultimatum. <laughs> Having reread <laughs> Ultimatum from the Ultimate line, like I had overlooked when we discussed that comic um, in in my Ultimate year, like yeah. how much Ultimatum is just doing Fatal Attractions. I, I had definitely forgotten that. <laughs> and then number two, this is where the comic loses me uh, pretty severely or this event loses me because we have we have Magneto escalate to just like wanton senseless violence so whatever conversation we were having is just thrown out the window um and then it's just it's just very 
I guess, kind of 90s extreme in an effort to do, hey, can we can we do really cool visuals with uh, spiky adamantium flowing out of Wolverine's body? And I don't I don't care if it makes any sense, but just can it look cool and be sort of awful? Um, and they do that. And uh, and it sells this really giant traumatic thing to, you know, the most popular X-Men character, right? Like it, it sells yeah. in, it, as close as you can get to a death of Wolverine, basically without actually doing it. Uh, as well as the death of Magneto. Like, the ramifications are actually pretty massive. Um, so I guess I give them some storytelling credit for going with it, because it actually does, it kind of sets the line back. Like, I'm not going to spoil what happens next, but you kind of put yourself in a position now, or the X-Line puts itself in a position of, like, not really having Wolverine and Magneto, um, which is a, which is a hole for them moving forward. Uh, Anna, let's start with you. Um, in terms of the the denouement of this event and, and I guess the climax rather and and then kind of the the de-escalation what happens here that you like what what don't you like uh reactions to all this I don't know if I can put it in a frame of like and don't like because it's just things happened and I sort of have feelings about them in various ways I mean I don't hate the Muir Island era of Excalibur I think it sets yeah. that title off in another direction it's very different from you know the Claremont Davis era of Excalibur but there are actually stories that I enjoy from that era and it was nice to see a new status quo for them because that title really flounders for a while after Davis leaves for the second time so in yeah. a way, that was like a good outcome. I mean, I got a rep Excalibur whenever possible. But um, I was surprised. Mm. I had forgotten that the Wolverine Adamantium Skeleton thing was in Fatal Attractions. And it's like, oh, oh really? boy. I mean, he doesn't get it back until, what, 1999 or something? So I had to look it up. It's a while. And it's a long it's a time. While. Yeah. So, I yeah. mean, the ramifications of this are huge. And, of course, it leads into Onslaught as well, which, you know, you can kind of tell because of the mind erase thing. And there's going to be consequences of that. So, yeah, mm. huge ramifications of all of this. And I was surprised by how important this event was in that respect. But I won't weigh in on good or bad. <laughs> <laughs> yes, important. Important is a better way to put it. Um, it, it. Charlotte, what were your reactions to kind of all the the fallout from this? I mean, I was excited for maybe a, a bit of a new change in status quo. Although I don't know how much Wolverine leaving does that because he wasn't he wasn't a huge presence. I don't think. Uh, but yeah, having Magneto completely out is interesting. It's more interesting if there's like completely new villains and it's still not uh, the upstarts and the acolytes and Fabian Cortez. So I don't <laughs> yeah. know. I don't know how that's going to go. That um, That is one of the challenges you have with where X-Men comics are in 93 because Magneto is such a presence after yeah. the Claremont Lee X-Men 1 to 3, right? Magneto is just, he's the villain. He is the villain. And then you kind of take him out here by Fatal Attractions. Okay, so where do we go next? Um, you still have Mr. Sinister looming about, right? So that that's an option. Apocalypse is kind of brought low an executioner's song so apocalypse yeah. doesn't quite have the same weight and then you're trying to build the upstarts as the next thing but like i've been i i think sort of the the your mileage with the upstarts kind of dictates how you're gonna feel about a lot of X yeah. uncanny x-men to to come and obviously as i've indicated here for me that doesn't do a heck of a lot so i actually do think they kind of set themselves back in terms of like well what what are the threats? And then I guess actually that brings us full circle to where we started, which is, well, what are the threats? Well, it's the legacy virus now. Like that becomes yeah. the villain of sorts and, and the crux of so much conversation with mutant yeah. dumb. Except, except it's not a, a villain that can that works through superheroing and it feels like the line at this point is more interested in the superheroing parts than in the character dynamics and people reacting to the legacy virus parts. Yeah. So yeah. I, I'm not confident in their ability or like intentions of actually dealing with that uh, and that's why i'm it's not a, at all a part of these comics but that's why i'm most excited about uh, age of apocalypse because it feels like something very different yeah from what's been going on from for the last maybe three years i, I think that's a big part of why it's so welcome and i, I think you're yeah. spot on there that's well put that like yes it doesn't allow for superheroing in the traditional sense it actually <laughs> sets up a lot of scenes of beast in the lab and dr moira mctaggart on your aisle like it yeah. actually sets up yeah. a ton of them exploring and experimenting which i find very interesting in retrospect. Um, at the time, I don't know that that's what that's what audience were super craving from their X Men books. Yeah, that um, was a really cogent observation because it's like they're setting up a threat that doesn't speak to what the skills of this era of X Men comics are, which is yeah. bombastic fights and explosions and extreme art. And this nuanced story about the legacy virus doesn't really fit those tendencies very well. Yeah, you know? 
No, it does not. So it, we kind of talked about it here, but the I, I think the ending of this event is uh, it drags on for too long. I think Wolverine seventy five is it, it feels very long. Um, yeah. it, it's written by Larry Hama, who I love and, and does a great run on on Wolverine here. Uh, but this issue in particular is is all just trying to get Wolverine back. You know, it's just getting the X Men team back from this fight with Magneto, and it's kind of reliving. Um, the uh, the Phoenix Saga, like like the descent of the space shuttle into the atmosphere, and Jean Grey's even you know uh, duplicating some of her role in terms of trying to prevent everything. We have a big emotional moment where Wolverine, you know, basically, you know, goes away from the light, you know, comes back to to grab onto Jean's hand, right? So if you're if you're big into Wolverine and if you're big into Logan and Jean, um, there's there's some moments here, but it, it definitely drags. And then we get to Excalibur, um, which I actually think course corrects a bit i think anna to your point it sets up an interesting new era of the team on your aisle i think you know to your point post alan davis's second stint on the title there's there's kind of a what do we do feel with excalibur right now and and kurt is kind of talking about like his feelings of as, as a failure of a leader kind of feeling some some you know, like he hasn't kept the team together the way he should have. Um, and he's running through the roster and it's literally like everybody, you know, from Excalibur is like doing different things or, or, you know, like just not available to be a part of this team. So bringing Kurt, Rachel Summers, Kitty, the mutants who are still kind of around um, to Muriel with Moira actually sets up uh, a nice new direction, I think, which is, you know, a lot of times the best you can hope for <laughs> with big Marvel events is like, Oh, will this, will this lead to something interesting down the road? And I think for Excalibur, it, it certainly sets up that potential, which is nice. Yeah. Uh, any yeah. other kind of major major takeaways from these these events? Uh, I mean, I, I'm not the biggest Excalibur fan, so I haven't been keeping up uh, a lot with what's been going on there. Uh, but so I was very happy in seeing Kurt and Kitty in the in the earlier issues of this. Like, I really was overjoyed of seeing Kurt in the yeah in the General Minter General Minter Junior uh, drone uh, issues. Um, so, so, yeah, but yeah, I'm curious of uh, having this new version of the team, and I'll try to check out some uh, some of those issues with Rachel and uh, and Kurt and Kitty. Uh, I was it was also interesting to have uh, the, the I think the first meeting of Cable and Rachel Summers, as far as I'm aware. The way they uh, addressed but... each other, it sounded that way. Yeah, I, yeah. I was I should have looked that up too, but I was assuming it was based on the way it played out, but. Yes. Yeah, there's, there's some Grey Summers family stuff that's a bit interesting, although it's it's far from being the focus of the issue. Yeah, and um, I, I'm definitely fuzzy on the timing of when we learn things about Cable. You know, at, as is Cable himself, <laughs> like that is yeah. that is his nature. Um, I think but, officially it was in the Cable miniseries, but we've yes. basically known about for a few years now. I think. Yeah, yeah. So the, the, right, there's some there's some who knows what. I feel going like it was a little like, bit like Nightcrawler Mystique relationship, where everybody kind of knew that's what it was yeah. for a really long time, but we didn't actually yeah. get the issue confirming it for <laughs> way too long. Yeah. yeah. Yep, for sure. Um, you know, there's also, we didn't mention this, but X-Men Unlimited number two is apparently the issue where uh, Magneto's name is confirmed as Eric Magnus Lencher, that Magnus is confirmed as his middle name. <laughs> I didn't realize it had taken that long um, to sort of like put those dots together. I guess it's very much like um, like Stanley, like, you know, yeah, Robert calling, Bruce calling, Banner. yeah, exactly. Like Robert Banner and just kind of being yeah. like, uh, I guess it's middle name. I don't know. How do we, how do we make this make sense? Um, yeah, no, it's, it's definitely some interesting stuff. I, again, like I like, I, I really like the front half of fatal attractions, especially as a Magneto focus. Um, I, I think it's, I had underrated in my mind how, how interesting this comic could be, or at least like the potential it sets up for really talking about who Magneto is, um, what this character has been through, and potentially what they're trying to do, and and then when you get to X Men twenty five, predictably it just escalates to such a level of, um, you know, like like violence they just can't come back from. Absolutely, um, so it, it escalates in such a way that you can't continue exploring, you know, kind of the conversation. I mean, Charlotte, I think the point you made I think is actually really interesting, which is like if this event or sort of this era had been more about various x-men siding with magneto that's an interesting look and yeah, that's and a I different thing big picture that this whole story would work better if this was like in the clements era the xavier wasn't there and the x-men had to wrestle between the dream uh, xavier left them mm. and what the the perspective that magneto is bringing to the table right now yeah uh, th that would be more interesting but yeah the the focus on xavier as basically the main character of this comic kind of loses me at uh, at a lot of uh, at a lot of points 
Yeah. Well, Magazino just doesn't represent a viable alternative, I think, is one of the central problems for me with the entire yeah. event. Because if we're going to buy into, you know, this asteroid-based thingy spaceship as a mutant haven, we don't see any indication that that would be something anybody would enjoy. It's just a group of horrible <laughs> yeah. people that kill each other for disagreeing yeah. with them. I mean, why would anybody want to join? It's just really unclear. Right. And it's so... I mean, you, you brought it up earlier, I think, Charlotte, that it's so centrally associated with supremacy, and especially white supremacy, yeah. weirdly, because, I mean, even Exodus is going and claiming people and only people who are chosen as being capable of being part of this yeah, master he, race are allowed to go. So it's just not yeah, a viable alternative. The, yeah, He goes to the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants and takes the only hot Yeah, one. yeah. <laughs> and that's like at the beginning, right? So I mean... Yeah, and the only one who has never worked with Magneto before. So yeah. Because Toad and... He leaves, he leaves Toad, uh, Pyro, Love and Blob. And yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Poor, poor sunburnt blob. <laughs> poor Fred yeah. gets left behind. <laughs> That's a good point. Uh, yeah, no, you're right. It's like your options as a mutant in this era are Professor X's uh, hopeful paramilitary task force, Cable's violent paramilitary task force, <laughs> and <laughs> Magneto's uh, murder space station. Like those are your <laughs> those are your three options. Um, maybe yeah. there's a middle. Maybe there's a middle somewhere in there. Uh, all right, so I think that's that kind of covers it for me. Do we have any any big final thoughts on on stuff we missed or anything important? Oh, I have two things. So I did want to mention the thing about BAMP dolls, just because they do yeah. have a strong presence yeah. throughout this story, and we get a doll exchanged between characters, which is interesting. So I won't tend us down a whole tangent about it, but it is a really <laughs> interesting symbol in the terms of of the X Men franchise because it started actually as a very like sexualized symbol in the sense that. Mm-hmm. One of the first, it was like, I think the second appearance of the BAMP doll is in the pinup from Uncanny X-Men one, number 168, in which Nightcrawler is honeypotting Amanda and he uses the BAMP doll to um, position it in front of his genitals. So it mm-hmm. definitely has that component. <laughs> and yet we see it turned into kind of just a symbol of kind of the acceptance, you know, that the X-Men represent and Nightcrawler being the soul of the X-Men and him being sort of distilled into that figure in doll form is interesting, but I'd argue actually problematic in some senses too, because he's had concerns about being the X-Men's mascot at times. So Mm. it kind of intersects with that in some interesting ways, but it's interesting the way that it's exchanged between the young female members of the X-Men. So the doll, I believe, belongs to Kitty. And she gives it to Ileana when she's de-aged. Some of this happens off panel, so I'm inferring. Because Ileana has it here, and then it becomes Jubilee's doll, and then Jubilee later sends it back to Kitty. And it's weird to me, Jubilee having the doll, because Jubilee and Nightcrawler aren't friends. Yeah, right. And even, in fact, the first time that they met in Excalibur, like 51 or 52 maybe, I maybe have the issue numbers wrong, it's it's the first time that um, Excalibur reunites with the X-Men which again took way too long yeah. to happen. But anyway, um, she very is like, oh, he looks like a demon. We can't trust him. And is not really a particular big fan of his. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. kind of shoehorned in a little bit for me. Although I do like it as a sort of a symbol of exchange between, between these younger women. But it's also strange because then Kitty has the doll in Excalibur. And I'm like, having a doll version of your friend that you sleep with every night and he like lives down the hall from you. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what to make yeah. of that. I love it and hate it. It's weird, um, but such it is. It's then. that it's the extension of the of the friendship and the loss of Ileana, right? Mm-hmm. Like it comes to represent Ileana, but like they need they need like a limbo demon doll. Yeah, like it like it, it, it's still being Kurt is particularly confusing. Yeah. I anyway, I kind of hope it's not the same doll that Amanda had because you know. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. There's got to be there's got to be multiples made. Hopefully, we yes. hope. We hope. I mean. <laughs> So there's that, but also we didn't talk about the significance of the title of the event. Oh yeah, okay. Yep. Which you oh, know, yeah. it doesn't make a heck of a lot of sense. They try to shoehorn it in. It's in the X Men Unlimited issue. It's represented as a book that's like Fatal Attractions, Mutants and Men. Uh, by, I yes. think one of the guys that's in the debate show, um, which is yes. interesting. And then Magneto has a speech in one of the issues that really tries to shoehorn it in and tries to make it a metaphor about magnetism, and it was bad. Hmm. But I mean, I was just interested in it in the sense that it's clearly riffing in some regard on like Fatal Attraction, the film, which was still very much in the cultural consciousness at that time. I really don't think it's going much deeper than we want to do something adult 
and we wanted to seem adult, so we're choosing the title of this, you know, movie that resonates very much with, you know, serious adult matters that are, you know, whatever. I'm getting really... Fatal Attraction is a very complicated <laughs> movie <laughs> and very much associated with kind of like feminist backlash and a lot of other things. It has a very complicated like place in the cultural consciousness. But I did find it weird picking up that title here. And I, I did a little bit of research on this and I was reading a Psychology Today article about Fatal Attraction sim symptom or um, Fatal Attraction um, as kind of a... They call it a psychological disorder, but I think it's a little bit specious. But anyway, this is one of the quotes from that piece. It says, essentially, fatal attraction occurs when the specific behavior slash feature that drew you to another person is the same behavior slash feature that causes the two of you to break up. Mm. And I thought that was an interesting context for this entire event. You know, if this yeah. is a metaphor for mm. fatal attraction, you know, who's the Glenn Close character and who's the Michael Douglas character <laughs> between Xavier and Magneto? Can we map this onto this event in any way? I was trying. I was trying for significance. <laughs> I, that definition you can kind of you can kind of start to see it but definitely when you look at the the film the, there's a lot of mental gymnastics you have to do to, yeah. <laughs> to try to yeah. get to try to get it to align aside from clearly they thought it was a cool name yeah i did i did laugh out loud when i saw that in uh unlimited number two that there was a book called fatal attractions cool, fatal like i completely yeah. <laughs> i was like oh i had i'd forgotten they were trying to make this name make more sense um it, it reminds me actually of the 91 Avengers event we talked about on here, um, Operation Galactic Storm, where it was so clearly just like, well, there's there's Operation Desert Storm. So yeah. like, what if we what if we called this the same thing? Like there aren't tremendous parallels aside from this is cultural cultural uh, credit here that this thing has accumulated. So let's leverage that. But but I am interested in the deep dive exploration of who's Michael and who's Glenn. Um, so I look forward, I look forward to that essay. <laughs> like yeah. legit when you asked me which event I wanted to do and I didn't remember what the specific plot of fatal attractions was. I was like, Oh, well that sounds sexy. I'll do that one. And it was <laughs> not sexy in the way that I was hoping. No. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and even, you know, it, it's not, it's not here. The creators are not thinking about it, but modern context, people think about professor X and Magneto and think about, you know, queer subtext and romantic relationships and, and kind of how those characters interact. I don't know that you can find hardly any of that in Fatal Attractions, despite right, despite the name. Like, I don't think they're playing with that at all. Um, yeah. Maybe other readers could tell me otherwise, uh, but that that's definitely not something I see at this point. I don't in, in the X see it being present deliberately, but there is one scene in which they're having the big fight. It's the I forget which issue everything happens in, but it's the scene where um, Magneto deconstructs the wheelchair and Xavier's on the ground and they're having kind of a fight. There are some scenes there, like mm. Xavier's on the ground and Magneto kind of reaches out and cups his chin and sort of raises his head towards him to speak okay. with him. So there's a little bit of, you know, queer coding that you could mm. read into that. I kind of think during this era of X-Men, it is not deliberate the way that those things were deliberate during no. the Claremont era, which is, again, one of the reasons why this era is not one that I like quite as much as that previous era. I'm all I'm, I'm here and, for the coding. And they're, they're, go, they're going out of their way to remind us that Xavier has had many girlfriends. Yeah, and so yeah. has the, we see uh, what's the Empress of the Shia, there's Moira, mm -hmm. there's Emilia Votes. Mm -hmm. Gabriel Which, Haller the, makes a return. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, also. Is this the, the introduction of Amelia Votes? Because it feels like she has, like, it feels like there has been a story about her, but I don't think so. I, I think she's I think she's given a name in previous okay. Acolyte stories. So I don't know if it's as early as X Men one to three, but definitely in the follow up. Um but this is the first story that I I remember thinking like, Oh yeah, I kinda know Amelia and now I feel like I'm getting a little bit of her deal okay. and, and where she's potentially going as a character. So I to me this was her most um important story so far. Well, do they do they yeah. do a retro continuity with her to put in the backstory with her and Xavier in I think it was like uncanny 309 or something from it wasn't included in fatal attractions but they kept sort of teasing it throughout this event that we're going to go back mm -hmm. and tell the story of them and i think that they do during this era but i could be totally wrong i if, if they do i don't remember it um, never mind then you might be right no it's <laughs> you might totally be right i'm i think about it way later with like like the mike carey mm -hmm. stuff is when it starts to um, okay. really pop for me but uh but yeah so there's yeah there's meat on the bone <laughs> there's meat on the bone <laughs> <with> these concepts <laughs> 
<laughs> and, uh, and and we'll see if it plays out here going into to 94. So this was yeah. fun. Uh, this was good. Anna, thanks so much for joining. Um, as a reminder, where, where should people look for you? Where should people follow you on social or any of that fun stuff? Yeah, people can find me on Twitter just under the boring, very professional handle of apart underscore Anna. Um, you can find me writing for Comics <laughs> XF about various things, um, various other websites as well. And you can check out my award-winning anthology. It's an academic book, but I think it's accessible to non-academics as well called Super Sex, Sexuality, Fantasy, and the Superhero. Is that available now? It is available now. Absolutely. Amazing. Ebook, physical book, whatever your pleasure is. Cool, cool. Sounds awesome. Charlotte, where should folks find you? You can find me uh, on Twitter at Fierro Charlotte, a very original uh, ads name too. And um, you can find me on the Slack. Perfect. And that Slack is, of course, available to those of you who join us over at patreon.com slash year. Thanks to everybody who has done so. I'm Dave. You can find my stuff at comicbookherald.com. You can find me online at comicbookherald with the handle pretty much anywhere. And you've been listening to My Marvelous Year. So again, uh, the issues we're going to read for the next episode, 1993 Part 5, can be found on the show notes. We're going to do Daredevil, The Man Without Fear. Frank Miller returns for a mini. And then we're going to do a graphic novel written by Jim Starlin, Daredevil, Black Widow, abattoir <laughs> and i'll have to figure out if i'm pronouncing that correctly before we do that episode oh, i cannot believe you had me on for this instead of that <laughs> <laughs> i don't remember if i gave you a full list but i apologize if not i pro- <laughs> i think i just gravitated towards hey i know you love it nightcrawler I'll, I'll give you an x-men thing um so so next time i'm not we'll complaining definitely... but i feel like i'm the one of the only people that remembers that abattoir graphic novel so i look forward to hear yeah. listening to your discussion about it Amazing, amazing, Great. awesome. Uh, music for the show is by Disasterpiece. Again, you can find social handle for My Marvelous Year at My Marvelous Year. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you next year. See you next year. Uh-huh.